this it? Mayday. Is it? Hey everyone, welcome back to Mayday, the Handmaid's Tale podcast. Justin here with Tiana and very, very special guest for the third time, our most frequent interview and our favorite interview, let's just be honest, Ann Crabtree, former costume designer for the Handmaid's Tale. Ann, how are you doing today? I'm doing so much better from hearing that intro. I'm going to have to keep it recorded <laughs> that I play for people <laughs> on my new gig. No, yeah, I'm, well, I'm so oh. delighted. I'm so delighted to come back. Thank you guys. Well, we are amazingly happy to have you. I was not expecting to uh, interview you, but uh, seeing as how the Emmys are coming up and this is your third nomination, uh, we felt it was time. So tell us what it's like <laughs> go- going in this time. This is your third nomination. Uh, tell, does this one feel any different than the previous years? Huh, does it feel any different? I mean, of course, your first one is like your first school dance, right? You get really <laughs> nervous and you think no one's going to ask you to dance and or even invite you to the dance, for that matter. Uh, you know, the third time, I think I feel, look, everybody always wants to win whether they say so or not. I don't think I will uh, because of the category I'm in and I haven't won before. I think I'm the only person on the whole show who hasn't won, which is really embarrassing. I mean, maybe some of the actors, but, uh, but Hey, what can we do? (laughs) Can't do anything about that. Listen, it's, it's sort of rare waters, right. To actually be invited to, to compete as it were. And uh, because I suck at athletics, perhaps I can somehow (laughs) win or or at least uh, do my best at competing with the Emmys. Let's see. But it it feels nice. You know, it it feels like a celebration at the end of really two to two and a half spectacular years with The Handmaid's Tale. So why not? I mean, it's a way, it's a great way to go out, I should say. Absolutely. And I did, yeah. I was, when I was doing my research, I ran into a recent interview you did where you're talking about, well, Hey, I'm in the Smithsonian, but I got no Emmy, which you, you said, kind of, which you said kind of jokingly, which, which when you say it out loud, makes it sound a little bit more ridiculous that you haven't won. Yeah. I've always been quite plain spoken. I attribute that to Kentucky and being <laughs> half Asian. I mean, I can't help it, but you know, might as well speak the truth. Absolutely. <laughs> if you want to speak at all, yeah. You've won to us. <laughs> there you go. You're a winner uh, in our eyes. Uh, so Tiana's got the next question, which actually kind of dovetails perfectly into it. Okay. Yeah, so um, so you made the decision pretty quietly to no longer continue on with The Handmaid's Tale. At this point, are you able to share what led you to make that decision? Sure. I think, I mean, how to make that one short and succinct. I think that, you know, what's funny I still hadn't watched episodes um, that the second half of season two until last night. Oh my gosh! And oh, wow. I, <laughs> I know, and that's coming from someone who adores the show. So you can see that it has had a huge impact on my creative life, my emotional life, my psychological life. I actually took a um, so so the the reason why. I sort of left early for season 
two, and really it was just a month early, and I always design ahead, so I was ready. Is I, I think we said it on another podcast perhaps that I left to go do a film with Dee Reed, uh, which is called The Last Thing mm-hmm. He Wanted. And so it worked out that I could do that and still complete the work, you know, sort of on the road. But then I, after that film, I took a nine-month break, which I've never done in 30 years. And I really think I needed to sit with all that the show meant to me and certainly the material uh, especially. And the very close relationships, as you could see from you know, SCAD, the actors coming to support, and Margaret Atwood even, you know, writing me in July or August to say, you've never been able to fit into the boxes, so just know that I think they should create another box for you. Uh, (laughs) But also, she asked me, you know, like, look, I'm coming out with this other novel, or, or it's just come out, and I've been busy, but not too busy to say, you know, how nice it would be if you could design that one too. So that was a pretty good uh, last hug <laughs> from Absolutely. Margaret Atwood after that season. I, all I can say about leaving, because I probably haven't, even in nine months, I haven't come to the conclusion as to why it was so big. You guys all, you know, you both know my personal ups and downs sure. through life, you know, coming to this age of 55. And I think what The Handmaid's Tale did as a novel and as a series, practically living it for two and a half years, I think it triggered so many things in my personal life that were ultimately so positive in my creating the show and my delving very deep, like a deep dive into a process. And then in a not so positive way, it really, you know, triggered some things that I hadn't actually dealt with my whole life. And so... Actually, I see that as positive, too, because how many people, I always say this about the Hammy's Bill, how many people get to actually go through therapy while working and getting paid for it, you know? So that was my therapy, you know, after all those years. And so I'm quite grateful to it. I just needed to move on as any creator does, because you never want to repeat what you've already done as an artist. I don't think anybody really does. And... You know, I think I want to do other things besides just costume design. I actually know that I want to do other things besides costume design. And I was probably at a place where I was asking for those things and perhaps folks just weren't ready, you know, to to maybe understand that I could do both costume design and those other things. Hmm. So I made a, a conscious decision that I needed to grow. And to do that, sometimes you have to say goodbye to the very thing that you're in love with. And I'm still in love with it. I mean, I watched it last night and I was like, dear God, this is beautiful. Like, I don't, I hope I can still do that in my life as a costume designer going forward. Yeah. You know? It's one of those things. No, that's great. And I, I totally understand what you're saying. You know, it's one of those things where you're in this creative, emotional high but it is so emotionally and just for your life taxing. And so at some point you got to kind of step back from this thing that you love. And that's, that that's more or less what I was imagining because I knowing you and, and having talked to you so many times, I could just see even working on the show doing and how you work, the intensity with which you work. And so that doesn't surprise me as to why that's the reason. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
the life of uh, TV is crazy in and of itself, and you give up your life to do that. But it, somehow The Handmaid's Tale felt even bigger than that, you know? Absolutely. So. Um, and that really flows right into this next part, which is now that you've had time to step back, you took that nine months and you've taken a little more time now to do other things. You did have the film with Dee Reese and you yeah. got some other projects coming up. Are you able to kind of look yeah. back on that right now and think about all the things you accomplished on the show and how is it different now looking back on it than it was obviously when you were fresh off the show, taking that time to kind of recoup? You know what's beautiful is that I realized that it definitely reinstilled the need to live my life in an artistic way. And I, I say that delicately because I never want to come off as this, you know, bizarro <laughs> artist who can't live in the world. But I think that we often, <laughs> when we choose, you know, commerce over art because we have to in this, in this age where everything is so costly. You know, I, I studied art. I didn't study costume design. I didn't study theater. I didn't study film or all those things that actually are what I'm doing. And I think The Handmaid's Tale allowed me to mold a different way of working and a different way of building a world. And so what I realized after two and a half years is I'm getting hired now very openly and quite confidently to come in and build worlds. And I've always made a joke because I wear overalls and I go to Starbucks and I'm a costume designer, but they always say, hey, are you in construction? I'm like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually constructing worlds. So, you know, this time off has made me realize that there are no accidents and it's all beautiful happenstance. You know, life, life happens but it's not by accident that all roads lead to where you're supposed to be. And right now my world is on the road and creating so many different worlds for this new project that I was supposed to expand. That's what it was like. And, and the handmaid's tell helped me do that to kind of jump off great cliffs with great divides and no safety net and be able to pull off something that people responded to. So I think Looking back at everything, you know, I'm not going to talk about the Smithsonian or an upcoming museum project and things like that, because that kind of stuff still boggles my mind. I still haven't sort of gotten to a place of true understanding as to the fire, you know, that happened after I created the costumes and, and how it translated politically. I still, like, I still don't get it. And I understand it, but I, I can't quite fathom how lucky I was. Like, how, why me? You know what I mean? And of course me, because of my heritage, because of my multiracial makeup, because of my understanding of different cultures and religions. But at the same time, it, it still doesn't quite make sense to me. So I don't know when that answer will come, <laughs> but it's not yet there. Wow. I relate question. so hard to everything that you just said. Yeah. Oh, no, com it makes complete sense. I'm also a multiracial, multicultural individual who studied art and loves art more than virtually anything else in the world, but still has to make a living. So finding the way to build, for me, it's building like journeys for users, but um, yeah, finding the way to build the meaningful thing while still earning a living is, is quite an amazing thing when it happens. It really is. It's, it's a very lucky yeah. thing. Um, yeah. Tiana, why don't we jump into so, a social media question real quick. I think a good one to start with would be um, Rachel Welch. 
Yeah, um, Rachel Welchman, she she clearly has listened to the other interviews with you. Says to tell you that she loves you and misses misses you. Um, and the work you did on seasons one and two was the first time she's ever really connected with a costume as a character in a show. And it opened oh. up a whole world to her. So she's very grateful to have been introduced to your work there. Oh, my gosh. Um, and That's amazing, Rachel. Thank you. Yeah. Is that similar to anything you've heard from other viewers? Do you ever hear um, that the costuming you did for one and two were really impactful to other people like that? I have, and I don't want to be callous about that because it's such a very sacred thing to say to anybody, you know, um, and I mean that, you know, Rachel, if you're going to listen to this later, it's an incredibly uh, beautiful gift to give to someone who creates for a living because anyone, and I, I never used to use the word art until actually February <laughs> when I gave a talk in South Africa my best friend said, you have to say you're an artist. Like you, you can say that now, you know, after all these years, I think I felt like a fraud because I had never finished art school. Right. But the thing with artists is you, you create for a moment in time that you're trying to disseminate yourself and try to understand. And the fact that kind of, that's the fuel or fire I was talking about, that kind of vision that happens, that kind of spark that somehow alights in someone else's mind by viewing it, whether or not it's the same message, you know, um, is so uh, unfathomable to me. And I have heard it before. And that's <laughs> very in lies the thing we just said, you guys, Justin and Tiana, it's, you can't uh, understand it. And so that's what makes it sacred. You're just a vessel. You know, I'm getting emotional. How weird. <laughs> Sorry, Rachel. That's what you did to me. You, um, you're an empty vessel and you try your best to use whatever magic or energy or good intentions that you have or vision. But really, it's not up to you, oh, you know, in full. It's up to you to come up with something and then by, by everyone's good graces, by the muses or God or Allah or Buddha, whoever you want to believe in or your ancestors, what comes out is actually a culmination of all those things. And I think that's what is the universal magic thing that people connect to. And I, of course, could be wrong because I'm only human. That makes uh, perfect sense to me. When you're creating things for other individuals, it's a two-way street. You can yeah. create yeah. what feels exactly right to you or feels like the thing that was meant to happen, whether you wanted it or not. And, you know, other people's life circumstances that control, that hugely influence how they receive those things um, yeah. is completely out of your control. So it's really, it's kind of magical when they connect so well. Yeah, I will say that the, it's the biggest uh, compliment that people, that the clothing speaks to people as a, diff, as a very separate character is actually very um, important to me that the clothing actually talks silently to people is it's, it's communication in a different kind of way via vis-a-vis -vis an exterior layer of a person or a character, you know? Absolutely. And I think that's yeah. been one of the most fascinating things for myself, having never really delved into thinking about costume design was yeah. when you talk about having the backstory for the costumes in the same way that an actor or actress would have a backstory for their character, even if they weren't given one, that you had taken the time and felt the need to create 
uh, this environment, this you know history for these costumes in order to get into the headspace for the characters and what they should look like. Yeah. I always found totally. that to be completely fascinating. Um, so we do have another uh, social media question. Uh, yeah. from, this one came sure. from a couple people. Chelsea, Megan Matthews, and Michelle Mason both basically wanted to know which character was the most fun to design for and which character oh, was boy. the biggest challenge to design for. Huh. I would, you know, so this is not a pat answer by any means, but it's the true answer. And that is anytime you're creating anything, they become like small extensions of yourself, like a child, you know, in a mm-hmm. sense. And so you fall in love with everything that comes out of you, right? Even if it's ugly, even if it's not exactly what you'd hoped for, you still fall in love with the thing that you create. So it's very true that, of course, I love Serena Joy's and Naomi Putnam's beautiful concoctions as commander's wives, but that would be too easy because they're easy on the eye and they're cinematically beautiful and they uh, hold a whole host of hidden messages. And I love the commanders, you know, it's a love hate relationship because it's easy to hate a villain, but, but every human and every character is multi-layered. So you try to find the multi-layers within that. But I also love the kind of hardcore (laughs) distressing and aging and thought process that went into the colonies and, the women who embodied those people who were sent to death, you know, and the kind of ugly beauty, visual poetry that happened there. And, you know, I love the extras that, that uh, pop up on screen from the Econo people and the world of kind of every man, every woman, every child in gray that happens in the background. And, Man, and, and, you know, I love Lizzie's character, Alfred, because we're speaking to her tale, The Handmaid's Tale. So it's very difficult to, to not say Alfred, you know, or to say Lizzie and Madeline Brewer and, you know, and even Amanda mm-hmm. Brugel has quite interesting modernity in the role of a person of service. And those are the people who are the most beautiful to me on the street, as I mentioned I wear overalls like that's my I love the kind of everyman worker that you see in, say, Irving Penn's photos. So to me, Amanda Brugel's character is one of the most beautiful and the most poignant um, because what sort of uh, gifts or um, happiness does she receive from all of her service? It's through the children of others. So. Mm-hmm. Man, all of it's important. I loved Bradley Whitford's character because I could do something new. And his wife, Commander Lawrence, and his wife, Commander Lawrence's wife. You know, it's hard to say, right? It's really all of it's important to me, big and little, is the answer. Challenging, I would say, you know, it's all challenging in television. That's the boring thing to say, but it's the (laughs) truth because you have no time. And so we literally ran. You know, that was our normal slow pace was running and then our fast pace was high speed. And so, you know, to live your life that way because of schedule and wet and inclement weather and um, very intense scripts so that I always felt the need to coddle and protect my actors every morning. It's like all of that takes so much time that the actual designing of costumes 
I mean, that's why I wake up at two every morning, right? <laughs> because I need time to actually give to the sacred space of creating. But the world of TV takes up a good 12 to, you know, 16 hours just to film mm-hmm. and make the clothes and fit them. So, you know, the most challenging thing is actually the medium itself. Mm-hmm. And the best scripts are in TV right now. I was up yeah. for some films. After the Hemings Tale, um, after Dee's film, and actually took a TV script because it was the best. So while the medium is hard, the quality and the far reach of television is so important right now that I'm quite happy to sacrifice time for that, you know? Absolutely. Uh, Tiana, that kind of flows right into one of my favorite usernames, AM Space Pizza. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Instagram the Instagram names are always the best. We know that, you know, you've had a couple of character changes in the in the actors themselves during the show. For example, when uh Ivan Strahovski was pregnant. How do you deal with that when you're when you're trying to maintain, you know, a character yeah. look and feel um when you're dealing with big changes like that or or sudden other totally. things that require costuming adjustments? And totally. on that schedule First you were just all, talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. First of all, Yvonne, if you ever are listening to this, I still haven't met William. The oh. end. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I knew about William before many because I am a costume designer. So, so here's the deal. It was so exciting and I was so full of glee and not able to say anything and also not able to show anything. So all you want to do is protect the actor. And all you want to do is protect the human. And then secondly, thirdly, you want to protect the character, right? And so Yvonne is not able to have children in Gilead, at least in seasons one and two. I don't know where they went, season three or four. But so it would be impossible to show that she had a belly because I would the show would end. <laughs> yeah. And Alfred wouldn't have a thing, a place, right? So, right. I was constantly taking or having my set folks take pictures of her from the side to see, you know, what costumes were still working or not. And what I did anyway, and this is because of the brilliant Bruce Miller, you know, all of season two was about the mother. Well, how fitting that one of the leads became a mother Mm -hmm. because of divine intervention and or inspiration. So I... I went from um, sort of the top half of the body to celebrating the abdomen in the second season because all women want their bellies to grow, right, when they're, when they're pregnant mm-hmm. with a baby or pregnant with ideas or happy and full. And so I started playing around with that in Serena's costumes, and then she said, I can't not tell you I have a little little guy on the way or a little baby on the way and so I just incorporated all of it to be truthful and yes it was hard because I also was so worried about her keeping warm I was worried about her being able to eat enough you know (laughs) for Mm -hmm. for baby's health and so what you do is you become quite flexible and it just ups your game you know how do you design to that so that the world doesn't know about Yvonne and because she certainly wasn't ready to announce it yet. And then how do you not ruin a whole damn show <laughs> by showing pregnancy? It's like, Oh, it's a miracle. You All know, right. like, yeah. <laughs> so, Suddenly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sounds to me like uh, ever, 
especially you and uh, other people we've talked to in the show, this show seems to be a very people first show second focus on, you know, the human person first. Um, and I, it, it shows in all your work and all the things that you told us about how you process and uh, operate. And just if you follow Anne on, um, which you should on social media, you will always know that she is human first. That's very important. And do you find that to be unique to this show, to yourself in uh, the show business industry? Because you always hear horror stories about that not being the case. So talk a little bit about that. Sure. You know what? There's, there's every facet of human nature in, in life. And certainly it's, it's no different when mirroring, you know, the industry that I work in. So you see the whole scope of beautiful and ugly every day in <laughs> people big and small and what they choose to express, communicate, you know? And so all I can say is, is that I always try to throw it back into the work, whether it's positive or negative, because I don't think anything happens by accident, even in our day to day, you know, even this conversation will help me at some point later on down the road. But what I can tell you is, after all these years of working, finally, it's getting through my thick skull <laughs> that I do work in a certain way. And while I'm trying out something new in this new venture that I'm doing, what most costume designers do, I think, I can only speak for myself, I haven't had classical training, nor have I ever worked for anybody as an assistant designer. What I always do is work uh, per character. But what I'm doing differently this on this new show is to design per environment first, you know, and separate different sort of worlds in that way and, and kind of consider them to be planets that travel near each other and that orbit each other. And so that's been a very interesting way to design. But I can tell you guys and the listening audience that what I find, I guess, fascinating, because I didn't actually ever equate that with myself and kind of bizarrely satisfying as someone who, who tries very hard to stay human in my work and in my life, is that I was taking a lead actor through my wall. I'm still doing the damn wall. <laughs> I haven't found a new way of doing that. But it is important because, you know, it, it is so large that it is a quick immersion into the world. So because we live in the Jetsons age, I was taking this lead actor through my new wall on this new show and, and doing the very same thing to one of the main creators or writers of the show. And both are men. Mm. And both cry, and both cried, not not sobbing, but kind of got the clenched and and choked, and and it was because of this one thing where I was showing a whole part of a wall that will never be on camera, but is the interior of the character from the time before we met him on screen, if that makes any sense. Yes. The DNA or the history of that character as a baby up until we meet him on screen. I don't know why that was important for me. I think it remind his his character and the backstory in my mind reminded me so much of growing up in Kentucky and seeing parts of uh, Indiana across the bridge and a kind of drowned world of places that flood. And I was like, you know what? If I read a script and I cry or get a little bit emotional, that's the script for me because I relate to it. And so I just sort of equated that moment with those two people separately as 
they get it and it pulls them in emotionally. So it's the right click, right? It's the right button to push in the costumes. Right. Um, I think Tiana is going to take the next one here. We got a couple um, Handmaid's Tale specific uh, questions right? about certain, very certain things. Oh, yeah. So um, kind of going off what you were just saying, we had a question from uh, Diana Caro. I don't know how to say your last name, Diana, right. or your the, the last part of your handle. It's C-A-R-V-A-J-A-L-28. So okay. Diana wanted to know, were there any special suggestions or requests by the actors? And, and as, as you kind of talk about your, your um, perceptions of backstories and histories of each character, mm-hmm. um, I think that really goes nicely with this question. Like, I wonder if ever their built-up backstory for their character that they had created um, for themselves as an actor and what you imagined ever diverged and they had some special requests that they really felt belonged with their character? You know, it's interesting because that's such a very different uh, creative experience because the world was created by someone and then the Mm -hmm. individuals come into play and put those, you know, kind of prison uniforms on, right, in this new world of Gilead. So it's a bit different. But, you know, I think first initial conversations with Amanda Brugel, who had studied it became her thesis in college, The Handmaid's Tale. So there was none better to have a conversation with. But she loved everything. She sort of showed up in her trailer, put it on, you know, and melted into uh, her character. And, I mean, even uh, Tamira Wiley, you know, as Moira and Otifak Benley, you know, going from, in Samira's case, Moira in Gilead to Canada, right? Little America. And then O.T. Mm-hmm. going from when we see him in the pilot in in season one and maybe episode seven, and then he's escaped to Canada as well. And they find each other. Of course, there's conversations about feeling and what does an immigrant get handed in a paper bag when they've crossed a border and you know, I was quite lucky to have Bruce Miller and his cousin, who works for the UN, to give us real stories of reality. Most actors, I should say, I'm astounded at how intelligent they are. And I think you have to be to embody just yourself <laughs> and your casing as a human in this lifetime, but all the other people that you portray. And so my my greatest conversations were with those people or like a Bradley Whitford who wanted a sense of humor and with that we gave him a bit of sort of Mick Jagger meets you know Thomas Jefferson <laughs> Lord of the Manor you know <laughs> you know you saw that right oh and yeah the end of season two, it's, it's um Cherry Jones who's up for an Emmy actually they both are this season you know Cherry Jones is someone who I've adored and loved and worked with prior years ago and she as June's mother. Anybody in theater is so specific because it's a feeling and it has to speak for them. So Amy's tale is perfect. And Cherry talked about reality and wanting to actually feel like her mom. I remember I had a t-shirt on that was an indigenous protest t-shirt. She wanted to wear that and I wanted to give her something that an indigenous person gave me in Canada, you know, one night 
<laughs> on the street. And, and so she, she kind of took some pieces from me and that often happens. I mean, even the boots for the handmaids. Right. So Lizzie, you know, also had ideas for June season one and two, because we had to keep her as strong as Alfred. And so I think Lizzie often likes to wear her own clothes in many of her shows she works on. It's just how she works. It's how she operates. So, mm-hmm. you know, we had a few conversations about probably shoes, high heels that maybe I wouldn't have chosen, but I understood why she wanted them for June prior Absolutely. to Gilead. All, and, you know, for Christ's sake, I'm, I'm leaving out so many people here. I mean, Madeline Brewer is completely a poet, a walking poet in her clothing and how she approaches things. And also um, Alexis, I mean, I, I will say most actors give me their trust. And I don't know how I've been blessed to get that. But we have our initial conversation in The Handmaid's Tale. It's a world created before they ever step off the plane because it's they have to jump into the water immediately and begin to work. And it's not easy in a made-up world. I think that all the conversations really, they're always collaborative, but there is a heck of a lot of trust. I have to say I'm quite lucky on that show, even with the producers, you know, with Lizzie, with Bruce, with Warren, they all said, we like what you're doing. There was only one moment, uh, two actually, and having watched the episodes last night, I was like, I was right. <laughs> I'm like the bratty kid. Uh-huh. The the um the whites that were used when Madeline Brewer goes and visits her real daughter in the clean room of the hospital because mm. the baby's dying. Yep. They thought that the whites were a little bit over the top, but it came from a real place and a fashion place, and I thought it really worked, and people loved it, right? Mm. And it was oh. a kind of cleansing palette but also the funeral the funeral uh in blacks and reds oh, that was that gorgeous was something Bruce mm-hmm. saw yeah. that i did uh for another exhibition and he's like hey i want to use that so it came back for the funeral but i included this drummer boy but it all lent itself to a beautiful puzzle piece of a visual graphic in that white snow yeah. you know all right <laughs> yeah, we got those, those overhead shots were amazing absolutely Oh, God. Yeah. We got a couple more here and then we'll uh, wrap it up. Um, This one is very specific, and I have not heard anybody ask about this, nor have I heard you really talk about it. Uh, The leather muzzles from the opening of season two, uh, where they're up on the gallows in uh, Fenway Park and all the women have the leather muzzles across their mouth. Uh, Our user, uh, it it looks like Zax Zanori. It's two two X's in there, but she wants to know what research you did to find that look for those uh, leather muzzles. And she said she was getting a Kara Walker vibe, metaphorically, but was very curious about your design development. Kara Walker, that's so interesting because I love Kara Walker. I don't know that I've ever seen those muzzles in her work, so that's very interesting. I don't know if it happened via osmosis. <laughs> but um, I do love Kara Walker. I haven't looked at her recently. I certainly didn't see the beautiful giant statue that was in, I think, New York City made out of sugar. I will say no to the Kara Walker uh, reference. So we used it in season one very briefly on Alexis Bledel, where mm. she didn't speak for a whole episode and her lover was being hung in front of her and they muzzle both of them. And you see that when they're in the van together one last time before they whisk her lover away, who was a Martha. 
So that was made out of leather and canvas. And I think I just really wanted to see the two different textures. So I used the same pattern in season one, or season two, but I think people didn't equate it as the same thing. So it felt really new. I made the ones all out of leather for season one because it was the gallows. I think I was thinking, I mean, look, there's a million uh, visuals that are in my brain any moment that I'm designing, but I was thinking on the gallows as being so macabre and so medieval and leather. You know, I'm from Kentucky. I'm a vegetarian. I still wear leather shoes. Okay, sue me. But I think about slaughterhouses and my love of animals and and cattle and how in the world of Gilead, they live this existence where we don't really know where fabric comes from to Gilead. We don't really know where leather comes from. And if they're living organically, then they save all the materials, right, for use later however it's used. And so in my crazy madman brain, I always devise off camera what's happening to create the factories, quote unquote, of Gilead, which is basically in parentheses, the costume shop. Mm -hmm. And so that is, they would have saved all the leather hides from their organic meat and make shoes, make belts, make those horrific silencers on the mouths of anyone being tried because you need something that can be used over and over throughout time. As I've said in the past, if I'm Commander Waterford, I'm designing something so that you don't have to keep making things. There's not enough resources left in the world at the end of the world. So leather is something that can be used over and over. I may have thought about Bjork a few times Mm. in that beautiful Dancer in the Dark. Um, when she's going to be hung, but I don't think there was anything over her mouth. Maybe there was. Ultimately, I think of Francis Bacon and those stylistic paintings of, you know, open hides, splayed open, and the leather came from that. And, you know, all these handmaids being hung potentially felt like meat swinging. And then ultimately, we see that in season two, these great pieces of meat swinging atop Lizzie (laughs) when she's in the meat uh, van being whisked away, you know. So it's all of those things. And it did not come from Carol Walker, although I bow down to Carol Walker every day. Uh, Well, (laughs) we're going to get wrapping up here. But before we do, Tiana has a question about the future. Lays before Anne Crabtree. Can you tell us a little bit about your future projects? Um, The last thing you wanted... Utopia Road. The last thing he wanted is with um, the divine Anne Hathaway and Ben Affleck and Toby Jones and Rosie Perez. And I don't want to leave anybody out, but it's a brilliant film by Dee Rees and the producer Cassie and Elwes. And, um, and it should be coming out soon. And I think it's going to be a masterpiece. Um, it certainly was an incredible experience for me in Puerto Rico and Miami. And then uh, the show I'm working on now <clears throat> probably will be out in 2020. It's a huge one for Apple and it's top secret. The people behind it are Simon Kinberg, who was at the very beginnings of Marvel as a writer and producer. And um, David Weil is his writing partner who is quite new, but he's doing the Nazi Hunters. And um, uh, Simon's partner is Audrey 
Audrey Chan, who is his president of Genre Films, and she's an Asian woman, Korean, yay, in charge, <laughs> and I'm most impressed by her, and I hope this to be a long relationship, but they're behind this Apple project, and it's tremendously big and quite global in the idea of it, and I think it's going to be a winner. I don't want to jinx anything. <laughs> Beyond that, I am hoping to do to produce, executive produce, and costume design a really cool film with Cassie and Elvis. Uh, our dates are yet to be announced, and it's a really cool story about an intimate story about a kind of um, televangelist and in a dusty desert town. Um, and then my own projects are, I started in uh, Canada on my lunch hours going to interview women who had been abused. I, I'm trying to do short documentaries. And so I started that in Canada and did it, you know, on the Christmas, New Year's break. And then I decided that there's also such a rich and diverse and a story that you always hear this, the story that's never been told before, but it's really true uh, <laughs> concerning my mom and even my parents and their story and struggle in Kentucky. And so in that nine months, I decided to take some time for my own art, started interviewing my mother in a little cabin on a once uh, tobacco field farm. And it was amazing and quite existential. And it was the longest time I'd spent in Kentucky in I don't know how many years. And so that is in the works. And I just found out uh, like a month ago that I got accepted to an art residency in Fukuoka, Japan. So my impetus was to find a place, you know, a residency that was near to Okinawa, where my mom is from, Mm -hmm. so I could do a kind of multimedia piece and I've set aside three months so I have to finish (laughs) which is always my problem with my own work uh three months October November December of um 2020 to live and work in Fukuoka uh creating this kind of short film uh painting and written piece that um will be talked about soon, I hope. <laughs> I don't have the title yet, but it's, it's, I'm also looking at um, natural disasters and earthquakes and how the world was shaped once um, before everything separated. And I, of course, that speaks to being multiracial and trying to find my own sense of self within that. Um, I will say that the project I'm on now that I'm being paid to do <laughs> for yeah. Apple is quite karmic. And um, that I can only say that I'm getting in touch with my real samurai roots. Uh, And there's, I bought this 17th century samurai uh, robe that's in a frame, you know, in my office so that I do my very best work for this production because just like the handmaid's tale, it feels as personal and, um, it's a constant reminder to elevate my work to an even greater level. So let's hope it works. Well, whatever a greater <laughs> level is, we look forward to seeing it. And uh, Tiana, uh, Tiana, do you have anything else? 
Um, no, I mean, that was all amazing to hear about. And it'll definitely be talked about <laughs> soon. We will be talking about your future projects. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's all very exciting. Yes, as I always say, you always have a home in Mayday if you ever feel like, need, you know, not that you have any lack of outlets for needing to talk about anything, but uh, we are always happy to have you. And we thank you once again for joining us. And uh, we will be uh, impatiently awaiting for your first Emmy Award this season. Oh, you're so kind. Please uh, say that louder to the I people w- in the I, back. I will. Absolutely. So all everybody right. put out your positive vibes. And thank you so much. Yeah. And thanks for all the questions, everybody listening. Yeah. Take care, you guys. All right. See ya.